0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo.
1: Right, we want to welcome everyone back. This is week, we week? I think we're week four in our study of the book of Genesis. Yeah. We're looking at Genesis chapters one, two, and three. I finally realized we're not going to get past chapters one, two, and three. We're going to be lucky to, to get that far. And we're looking at the book of Genesis and trying to understand the images that are in Genesis and trace them as we go through the entire scriptures as well. So last week, I think we did the river of of life. This week, we're going to do the the tree of life. And we looked at water last week. This week, we're going to look at trees. We're going to begin by looking at a few verses in the book of Proverbs before we go to Genesis chapter two. So we're going to start in Proverbs chapter three, verse 18, if somebody wants to read that.
2: She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed.
1: There you go. People are trees. Let's go to Proverbs 11, verse 30. Proverbs 11, verse 30.
2: The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and the one who is wise saves lives.
1: There you go. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Proverbs 13, verse 12.
2: Hope deferred makes the heart sick. but desire uh, uh, fulfilled is a tree of life.
1: Very good. And Proverbs 15, verse 4.
2: A shooting tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit.
1: Very good. So we began by looking at, oh, hey, look, yeah, people are trees and the tree of life and what that might signify. Remember also last week, I'm just going to throw these verses out to you right now. And if we need to get back to them later, we can. But we read Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. We kind of went over those those nine chapters. And we noted that Ezekiel 40 through 48 is describing a temple on a mountain that's a city. And he measures the temple, and all of a sudden, water's coming out of the temple. Remember that in Ezekiel forty-seven, water's coming out of the temple, and it's trickling, and then it gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and it goes out to the Dead Sea, and everything on and its, its path becomes living. Well, at the end of Proverbs forty-seven, verse twelve, is the tree of life. Or oh, there's two trees actually, and those trees are, are the are for the healing of the nations. Well, that's the tree of life, and we know that because Revelation twenty-two. Verses 1, 2, and 3 make the same statement and refer to the tree of life on either side of the river, and its fruit is for the healing of the nation. So there again you have, and that connects the river of life and the tree of life. So if you want to write those down again, because you didn't remember from last week, but Ezekiel 47, 12, and Revelation 22, verses 1, 2, and 3. So now, let me cut to the chase again, and then we'll kind of come back. If you're reading the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs is like the whole deal. If you're reading the book of Proverbs, what you're supposed to do is, is realize the fact that you're standing in front of two trees. One's the tree of life, and one's the tree of knowledge of good and bad. I'm going to call it good and bad, and I'll tell you why in a, in a few minutes. You have these two trees, the tree of life, which is the tree of wisdom, and the tree of knowledge of good and bad, and you have to decide which one you're going to eat. Now, if you read the book of Proverbs, you might know that the first nine chapters, so if you're familiar with Proverbs, remember how Like one verse has nothing to do with the next verse. It's like, what? You know, a wise son. And then all of a sudden a foolish person. You're like, okay. Well, that's the first nine chapters aren't that way. The first nine chapters are kind of continuous, telling you a theme. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And what Proverbs 1 through 9 does is it sets lady wisdom and lady folly. And choose lady wisdom. And lady wisdom is a tree of life. So the book of Proverbs is pretending basically that that we're Adam and Eve and that we're standing before these two trees. And the same option that Adam and Eve had before them is the same option that we have before us. One's wisdom and one's folly. Which one are we going to do? So that's kind of, that's the whole book, the whole point of the book of of Proverbs. So let's now go to Genesis chapter two and let's, let's read verses eight through 17. And there's a bunch in here, some that we're going to talk about this week, some that we'll talk about next week. So let's go to, Prover- uh, to Genesis 2, uh, 8 through 17. And it's going to be important uh, a couple times, maybe maybe next week's notes in particular, to make sure that you look at your translation and what it says, if my translation is different than yours or if yours is different than the person who's reading it, so that we make sure, because the key is going to be that same word is going to occur later on, and you're like, oh, it's a different word here. Well, because your translation might be a different word in Genesis or whatever it might be. And we already discussed, for those of you listening on the podcast, that the bush, the burning bush in the book of Exodus, the word for bush is the same word for tree, the tree of life. So they're both equated. They're Moses going before a bush. It's on fire. It's on top of a mountain. That's where God dwells. Genesis 2, some of you want to read verses 8 through 17.
0: And the Lord God planted a garden, garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner.
1: So first, we need to include Genesis 2, verse 8 here, because it's actually going to come become important later on. So God planted a garden in Eden. I don't know if any of your translations say something different than the word planted, but that's one of the words that you want to note right now, because it's going to come up later on, maybe not tonight. So God planted a garden in Eden. Now we're going to skip down, well, actually verse 9, then we're going to skip down. In verse 9, he plants the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but my note down below is going to say it's, it really should be tree of knowledge of good and bad, and we'll discuss why in a second. Note that, that both trees were planted by God. Now, I put on the notes, the tree of life appears throughout the scriptures and things of that nature as well. But note, the letter C in your notes, the tree of life is in the center of the garden. That's the fill in the blank. It's in the center of the garden, uh, the middle of the garden, whatever your translation might say there. What, and write down whatever your translation says, the one that you're, you're used to using. In the midst of the garden, I think is what my new American standard says in the midst of the garden. So in the midst, in the center of, in the middle of whatever, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And note, by the way, it says that the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. And then it says, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil also. So we're assuming it's next to it, but we don't, you know, we don't know. Now, what's the significance of the tree of life being in the middle of the garden? Why is that important? What's in the middle of the garden? No one remembers. Okay, hmm. right. very good. We, we'll get there. We'll keep put, we'll keep pointing this out. No, so remember, I said a couple of weeks ago, the garden is a temple on a mountain. A temple on a mountain. It's where God dwells. So in the middle of the garden is where God dwells. Wouldn't it be the mercy seat? Exactly. Yeah, it's where God dwells. So the center of the garden. That means it's in the, the presence of God. That's the significance of in, in the center of the garden. The the next note then, letter D, is the knowledge of good and bad. Uh, Tov is the Hebrew word for good, and ra is the Hebrew word for bad or evil. And it doesn't mean evil here. Most often, in fact, and I put this on the notes, whenever it's coupled with good, when it's good and bad, it's not good and evil. And if you want to look at Numbers 13, 9, you'll see an example why the difference between the two. Evil has a connotation of um, moral evil, depravity, you know, for example, if, if you go to dinner and you might say your food was bad. You wouldn't say your food was evil, right? So numbers 13, uh, 19, I think is a good example there. Yeah. So how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? Whenever good and evil or good and bad are paired together, it most often means bad. The the next line, number two, to know, so they're going to have the knowledge of good and evil. To know in Hebrew is experiential. In other words, this is not talking about necessarily simply an intellectual awareness of good and bad. In fact, they already have an awareness, an intellectual awareness of good and bad because they were told, don't eat from that tree. I mean, that, they already know that's, a, that's, not, that's not a good thing. Now, in the next chapter, they're gonna to go ahead and decide, you know what? I think it's a good thing to eat. But right now, they already have a knowledge of good and bad because we're not supposed to eat from that tree. What they don't have is this experiential knowledge. So I put in the notes, Genesis 4, verse 1, which, depending on your translations, the Hebrew word says, no, Adam knew his wife. And, of course, and she gave birth to a son and she became pregnant. So he didn't just know her, guys. He did something else. So uh, the the New American Standard says he had relations with Eve, with, with his wife Eve, and she conceived. So it's the Hebrew word, no, that she knew, he knew her. So it's this experiential knowledge. So that's, that's what they don't have is experiential knowledge of good and bad. The knowledge of good and bad is what enables a person to make proper decisions. That's the fill in the blank. The knowledge of good and bad is what enables a person to make proper decisions Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, which is on your notes there, because that's going to be an important verse to kind of bear to bear in mind, just for, at least for a frame of reference. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. So the knowledge of good and bad is what enables a person to make proper decisions. Look at Deuteronomy 1, 39. Does anyone want to read that?
2: Moreover, your little ones who, you said, would become plunder, and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good and evil shall enter there. I will give it to them and they shall take possession of it.
1: What's interesting about thanks, Jazz. What's interesting about these two words, tav, Tov, and Ra, when they're used together in this context, they're actually almost always applied to children. In fact, like you're really good scholarly commentators, at least, are actually going to suggest that Adam and Eve are being portrayed as children here. And they're having this opportunity now as a child to make this decision, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do? And the parent in the story would be God the Father, say, hey, don't eat of that. And all of a sudden, they're going to say, you know what, we're going to decide this for ourselves. The point of that actually now is this. The ability to discern good and evil is actually necessary to function in life, uh, to get by. And remember this, Adam and Eve were created to rule. So how do you rule? If you don't have the knowledge of good and evil, how do you make decisions of like, that's a bad decision, that's a good decision. In other words, it's necessary for Adam and Eve to have this knowledge. The question's going to become, and we'll kind of skip ahead to chapter three, even though we didn't read it for, for now, is, and this is the fill in the blank, does mankind decide for itself what is good and bad, or does God make the determination? And those are the two fill in the blanks. Does mankind decide for itself and decide for itself is the fill in the blank, what is good and what is bad, or does God make the determination? This is the issue that runs the entire biblical story. And it's everything we've done for those that have been with us on the kingdom of God, it's the same thing here, guys. This It's the same thing. And let me see if I can explain. The question's going to be, so the fill in the blanks are decide for itself or or let God make the determination. God said, don't do it. And they know that's a bad thing then, because God said, don't do it. They know good and bad, but they decide, you know what? I don't trust him. And we'll see that, you know, Eve sees that it's good for the eyes and it's pleasing and it's good for food. And she's like, yeah, you know what? Maybe he's not actually telling us everything. And so she comes to decide for herself. So the question is, are they going to trust God and let him give it? Or are they going to decide, no, we're going to decide this for ourselves. Now, here's the reality. The knowledge of good and bad belongs only to God. Only God knows good and bad. And what I've said before, for those that have been with us in our classes on the kingdom of God, and we did a study on the justice of God, on the the gospel, the kingdom, and then justice. What you have is in the biblical story from Genesis through Revelation is competing kingdoms. And that's what's happening here in the garden. The serpent's representing one kingdom and God represents the other kingdom. And the question is, who makes the rules? The kingdoms of the world decide, we decide good and bad for ourselves. And as we discussed in our class and on study on the, on the kingdoms, the kingdoms of the world always decide good and bad based on power. They base it on wealth and prosperity. Uh, they base it on stepping on the little guy, advancing for their own, their own cause for themselves. They decide good and bad based on militarism. If I need to fight a war to, to prove it, I'll fight a war to prove it. And we, I think we tend generally even discuss this one on one occasion. That is, even if you in an American system where we have these elected congressmen, these elected senators that, that they represent us, and maybe you have like a really good person. And by the way, there have been a couple here and there. We won't go any further than that. But there's been a couple. The reality is, the only way that that male or female can get elected to Congress or to or, or as a senator is by other people helping them out. They need financial support to get the money needed to run the campaign. And the reality is, is that when they get in office, they owe those people whatever they need to owe them. And they might have good ethics and they might think, hey, I took money from good source, but they still have to honor those people. Whereas the reality is, even in an American system, the poor are really not represented. Even if somebody really wants to represent the poor, He's always, because the poor can't get you elected. And so there's always going to be this tension in there. Mm -hmm. So God comes along and says, no, I make the rules. I decide what's right or wrong. I decide what's good or bad or the nations do. And I'll kind of cut to the chase really quickly, just kind of give you an, an anecdote. In the book of Revelation, most people go, oh, the book of Revelation is about God bringing wrath upon the nations. First off, there's all these seals and these their judgments on the people because they're so wicked, and I hope they repent, you know, and if not, you know, go get them, God. And then the seven trumpets, yeah, go get them, God, because God's like bringing boils and plagues and earthquakes and famines and pestilence and you name it, and wild beasts and all demonic sources. This is God bringing havoc upon these people, and they need to repent, and then it wouldn't happen to them. But if they don't repent, they, they get what they deserve. You know, and then there's seven bowls, and like, yeah, there you go. Go get them, God. And if you read the book of Revelation carefully, what you'll find out ha- is happening is that the seals, the trumpets, and, and maybe not the bulls, but certainly the seals and the trumpets, that's what happens when humanity's in power. It's yeah. not God doing it. Now, you, well, God did it. Well, the prophets always give sovereignty to God, he's always in control of these things. But the reality is, the result of what's happening is what happens when humanity's in power, it's what happens when the beasts are in power. And we'll talk about the beast in a couple weeks. Whereas God's like, the key actually in the, in the book of Revelation is in chapter nine, after the, after the sixth of the seven trumpets, there's seven, bull, seven seals, then seven trumpets. But after the sixth trumpet, it says in chapter nine, I think it's verse like 20, 21, 22. It says, those who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. You hmm. see, God doesn't bring wrath to bring repentance because repentance doesn't come from wrath. But God desires repentance, and so he turns to another way. And the other way, of course, is the, is the two witnesses that we'll discuss some other time. The point, then, is, is that this is what happens when the, when the kingdoms of the world are in power. They bring havoc and destruction and chaos, not when God's in power. So let's turn to Proverbs chapter 30 now, verses 1 through 4. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 1 through 4. And if you guys have any comments after this, after we read this, let me know here, or questions or, or thoughts. And let's actually read verses 2 through 4 because verse 30, verse 1 just kind of is a, an address. So verses 2, 3, and 4, if somebody wants to read Proverbs 30, verses 2, 3, and 4.
2: Proverbs 32, surely I am only a brute, not a man. I do not have human understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hand has... Whose hand have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his son? Surely you know.
1: Thank you. So note what he's saying. My translation says in verse 2, surely I'm more stupid than any man. And I don't have the understanding of a man. Now, the speaker is the words of Agur. This is a kingly person. And this king saying, you know, I don't even have the understanding of of humanity. Verse 3 is the key. I have not learned the wisdom, and I don't have the knowledge of the Holy One. Mm. So I'm in power to make decisions of good and bad, and I I don't know what God knows. And the answer is only God knows what's good and bad, and therefore only God can be the source of ultimate truth of good and bad. And humanity, when we don't go to God... We create uh, havoc. So this is this is the whole tension that's happening in the story. And it's like, why did God put this test in front of them? You know, wh- Why did he do it? The whole point of it was, are you going to submit to me for the source of knowledge? Or are you going to decide to make the rules for yourself? In other words, are you going to decide that you're God? Or are you going to acknowledge that I'm God? And by the way, this is exactly what happens with Jesus in the garden. Because what does Satan, I'm sorry, not in the garden, in the wilderness. Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And he says, all the kingdoms of the world I'll give you if you bow down and worship me. What Satan is offering Jesus and what Satan is offering Adam and Eve is all the kingdoms of the world. The question is, and Adam and Eve were created to rule. They were created to have all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus was the son of God who came to establish God's kingdom on earth. That's exactly why he came. And Satan's like, look, The Father wants you to go to a cross. (laughs) Just bow down and worship me. I'll do it for you, and it won't cost you anything. And that's the question of humanity. We stand before these two trees. Which one are we going to choose? Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly? We know that Lady Wisdom leads to crosses. Eve didn't know that, but we do. Lady uh, Folly, well... There's no thorns or thistles in Lady Folly's garden. There's no suffering. There's no stones. That's this, this whole tension that's going on then in the biblical story. Are we going to trust God to give us wisdom and knowledge that he's really God? Or are we going to take this authority for ourselves? So, in the same thing with Jesus then, the answer was, I came to establish God's kingdom on earth, but not at the behest of the devil, only at the behest of the father. So that's kind of the idea. So the knowledge, number five, I think is on your notes. And the knowledge is not a bad thing. The bad comes in terms of the means by which they acquire it. So the fill in the blank is the means. The knowledge is not a bad thing. The bad thing comes by the means by which they acquire it. So the problem, in other words, was not eating from the tree. The problem was when they ate from it. At this point in time, you're not supposed to eat from it because God said you can't eat it. But remember, he did say you can eat from all the trees in the garden. Well, not this one. Eventually, they would have eaten from that one. Well, we don't know that, but that has to be the case, because how can they rule without the knowledge of good and bad? So God's going to have to go to them at some point. And again, we're filling in the blanks. We're, we're, we're speculating on a story in the biblical text, but we assume eventually God would have said, okay, go eat from that tree now too. The question was, can they eat from it now? One biblical commentator says this. He says, there's nothing wrong with driving a car, but there's something wrong with a five-year-old driving a car. Right? The beauty of that analogy there, or that illustration there, is the fact that Adam and Eve are being described as children who don't know good and bad yet. And so the answer is, yeah, you can't drive the car just yet. It's fun, by the way. I don't know if you've ever had your my daughter Mackenzie was sitting on my lap one time driving around the corner from baseball practice, like literally going like two blocks. And she's sitting in my lap and, uh, uh, there's people way up ahead of us. And and all of a sudden, you know, the whole idea, you got this two-year-old girl sitting on your lap. You're not supposed to draw attention to that fact. She starts laying (laughs) on the horn, get out of my way people. And I'm like, (laughs) it was hilarious right uh but anyway so not a good moment that was not that was that was bad by the way that's an illustration of when we shouldn't have allowed her to do such i didn't listen to the lord yes go ahead
0: i'm curious though because the lion lays down with the lamb and Mm -hmm. you have this imagery of there not being tension on the other side So if it's pre-fall, why would they have to know the knowledge of good and bad? In other words, the animals aren't going to eat each other. The earth is not going to be in turmoil. It's good. So it's unfolding from a perspective of good. And if it's all good, you don't have that need.
1: If what we're saying is true, and if what you're saying is true, then there's no need for them to rule. They don't do anything. So the fact that they're told to rule in chapter one suggests that maybe that's not the case. Now, as soon as we begin to go down this path any farther than that, Anthony, then we're speculating on, okay, well, we know that the lion and the lamb lay down together in the new creation. Did they lie down together in the first creation? And the, nope. we could go either way. The problem with going the direction that you went would be, well, they don't have to rule anything then because there's, there's nothing to rule over. And so I But again, we're bringing in views of creation, we're bringing in views of evolution, and it's a good question, and that's how we would answer it. So here we go. Uh, Number six, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or good good and bad, means moral autonomy. That's the fill in the blank. Moral autonomy. In other words, it's those who are legally responsible for their actions, the ability to make moral pronouncements, moral decisions. So the idea now is in eating from it is that they think they know more than God. And now they've experienced this, the, the consequence of doing so. All right, let me, let's finish up because we have a lot, lot more to do. Number seven, uh, discerning good and evil or discerning good and bad is a Hebrew expression referring to kings and authority figures making judgments in carrying out justice. So this is from G.K. Beal in his book, New Testament Biblical Theology. Discerning good and evil is a Hebrew expression referring to kings and authority figures making judgments and carrying out justice. This is what the kings do. They, they discern good and bad and it should be good and bad. There. Now, notice, by the way, and we'll kind of, we might get back to this in a few weeks. Adam and Eve were already, this is number eight, they were already to discern good and evil. They were supposed to pronounce the serpent as evil and not let it in the garden and we'll go over this next week when we discuss Adam and Eve's role of ruling and subduing, they were supposed to protect the garden. And one of the first things that they should have done is not let the serpent in it. They've already failed at their job, and now they've let him in. And of course, uh, that's the problem. So they, they were supposed to discern good and evil, but again, they're being described in, in the sense of, okay, here's this test. And you could you could argue that the test wasn't whether they let let, let the serpent in or not. The test was whether they ate from the tree or not, but Again, we can fill in the gaps of the story all we want and have fun with it. Any questions, any thoughts, any comments? Now we're going to have some fun. Now we're going to look at the idea of tree or trees in mountains, or especially trees in the biblical text. Anybody have any questions or thoughts before we go further? Uh, Pastor, I have a, one question. Yes. Hey, Marcus. Uh, when God created Adam,
2: uh, when he kept Adam in, in the midst of the garden, to look after the, to look after it so uh, before he created eve god called every animal in front of him and he named every each and every animal uh, so uh, as you as we were talking about the wisdom is there was no wisdom before uh, about the good and evil
1: there was wisdom, yes. I, th- I think I'm tracking with your question. There was wisdom there, but they were just supposed to discern in this particular situation what was the wise thing to do, right? So wisdom is knowledge carried out, right? So you might know something, but wisdom is applying that knowledge to a, to a situation. So you know some people have a lot of knowledge, but they have no wisdom. And some people have a lot of wisdom. So they had the knowledge and the, and the wisdom needed. They just simply didn't carry it out. And whether or not it was letting the serpent in the garden or not, whether that was the issue or certainly it was the issue of they knew God said, don't eat from this tree. And they chose to eat from it anyways, because they decided to take moral responsibility into their own hands to make themselves God and to decide what right, what good and bad is as kings and rulers on their own terms. Now, by the way, we'll get there in another uh, week or two weeks because a bunch of things we still have to flush out. One of them is is that when Adam and Eve decide to make the decision for good and and bad on their own terms, instead of ruling over the beasts, they become the beasts. And so we're gonna see this in the book of Daniel, for example, they are beasts and the beasts are kings and they rule over them. And of course, in the book of Revelation, there's this beast and the beast is Rome. It's the empires there. And we're being ruled over by the beasts. Instead of ruling the beasts, being ruled by the beast and so that theme will run through the biblical text also and uh we'll, i think okay. we're gonna look at daniel in maybe two weeks so so let's look at the word uh, at the idea of trees uh, trees in the in the biblical text and what i want you to understand is that the themes and motifs established in genesis 1 2 and 3 eden's a garden and the, it's the temple on the top of a mountain things of that nature adam and eve are kings and priests in that garden the river of life is there. It gives life to all in its wake. They eat from the tree of life. The tree of life is wisdom. God's the giver of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I want you to understand how all these themes just continuously perpetuate through the entirety of the biblical text. It's everywhere. The entire Bible is resonating with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's why we're not rushing through these three chapters. Make sense? So here we go. Trees now are the most commonly occurring living thing in the Bible behind God and humans. The word trees or tr- things related to trees themselves appears over a thousand times more than any other animal besides humans or any other being besides humans and God. Now, I mentioned last week, just to kind of give a little teaser for this week, trees are almost like humans in reverse because trees breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen. And humans breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. And there's this interesting relationship between trees and humans. And we know that we need trees in order to survive. There would be no life on earth if there wasn't trees and something interesting. We also know, as we continue to go through the biblical story, and we'll get there eventually, chapter three, that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent It was the rivalry of the kingdoms. What I'd say was the biblical story can be boiled down to these, there's two trees, which one you're going to eat from. And another way of phrasing that would be to say that there's two kingdoms, the kingdom of God or the kingdoms of the world. And another way of saying that is who decides what's good and bad. Is it God who's the only one who knows all things, or is it humanity? Do we make decisions of good and bad for ourselves? So that can be decided as going under lady folly or as opposed to Lady Wisdom, or as it goes going opposed to the kingdoms of the world, as opposed to the kingdom of God. That's kind of this biblical story. But in Genesis 3, it's actually two seeds. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Fruit (laughs) is a very common word for descendants. Be fruitful and multiply. Even Mm -hmm. the command to have children is tree-like. Be fruitful. Well, trees give fruit and the fruit of the womb. In fact, the Hebrew word for infertile is the word uprooted. It's like a tree that has no roots. So you can see the idea of trees and humanity being very closely and interconnected. Now, here's the next key. I think this is on your notes. Psalm chapter one. I I said verses one through six, but verses one through three is all we need to go to. Psalm chapter one, verses one through three. And if we recognize the significance of Psalm one, This becomes an even more powerful passage. So somebody want to read uh, Psalm 1 verses 1, 2, and 3.
2: Happy the man who follows not the counsel of the wicked, nor walks in the way of sinners, nor sits in the company of the insolent, but delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night. He is like a tree planted near running water that yields its fruit in due season and whose leaves never fade, whatever he does prospers.
1: There you go. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, so Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the introduction. If you're familiar with the book of Psalms, there's five books in the book of Psalms because there's five books of Moses. So the book of Psalms is divided into five books and they have a clear beginning point and a clear ending point. Book 1 begins in chapter 3, in Psalm 3. So Psalm 1 and 2 are They're called the gatekeeper psalms. That if you want to understand the book of Psalms, you need to understand Psalms 1 and 2. And Psalm 1 is about the wise person who's like a tree planted by streams of water. And what makes him wise? He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And in other words, he is like the person who contemplates the book of Proverbs all day long. Now, it's not just the book of Proverbs, it's the entire scriptures. In other words, he meditates on the law means actually the books of Moses are being described like they're, like they're the book of Proverbs. So the book of Moses or the books of Moses, the, the books of the law, are supposed to be meditated upon day and night. And when you do that, you're like a tree. Well, what do you mean like a tree? It's the tree of life. Planted by streams of water. Ah, that's the river of life. It's all this imagery uh, cropping up. Now, Psalm 2 is about God's son being the king. And so there you go. Humanity as the tree of wisdom who rules over creation. It's Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 again. What is humanity? We're God's image bearers. We're like trees. We are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and we rule over the earth as God's kings. That's Psalm 1 and 2, like a tree meditating on wisdom and ruling over the creation. That make sense? Now, let's go to Proverbs. uh, I think we might have already read that one. I think we did. Yeah, we did. Proverbs 3. Um, uh, Oh, actually, uh, no, this is actually good. Let's go uh, Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3. And I want you to look for Genesis language here in this passage. I know we read verse 18 earlier. We're going to look for Genesis language and so see how many th- Genesis things you can come out this two or three, at least uh, Genesis three. So Proverbs three, verses 13 through 20, Proverbs three, 13 through 20.
2: Blessed is the man who finds wisdom. The man who gains understanding for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and riches honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life. To those who embrace her, those who lay hold of her will be blessed. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the deeps were divided, and the clouds let drop the dew.
1: Thank you, Audrey. Do you see some Genesis stuff in there? Well, we already saw verse 18, right? The tree of life. Mm-hmm. And I verses 19 and 20 are kind of explicit, aren't they? Right? Because he, he created the heavens and the earth, the creation, the deeps broke open. This language of Genesis chapter one, the deeps breaking open. So guess what happens? The person who does this is like the tree is the tree of life. And what happens to the person who eats from the tree of life? They anybody catch it? You're blessed. What's one of the specific blessings? Other than that like gold, and it's, it's more precious than gold. Verse 16. Long life. Long life. Yeah, the tree of life. You eat from that, you get long life. Obviously, we would say, well, you get eternal life. Yeah, well, we haven't gotten there yet. So uh, the fall happened after chapter, after chapter two, so it's not, it's not eternal life yet. Uh, let's go to the gospel of Mark now. Mark chapter four, verses 30 through 32. I'll try to finish this up as quickly as I can. So Mark chapter four, verses 30 through 32. Somebody wants to read that one.
0: The parable of the mustard seed. He also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in
1: its shade. It's like a tree, but what's he equating to a tree? The kingdom of God. So that's, again, the whole idea. you got two trees. Which one you are going to choose from? The two trees are basically the equivalent of the, which kingdoms are you going to choose from? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world. And now you see Jesus using kingdom language, uh, using a trees to describe kingdoms and kingdom language. Very good.
0: Is it yeah. interesting, too, how when we talk about our heritage, we always identify with the tree.
1: The family tree. Yeah. 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 That's, that's yeah. right. Yep, yeah. Very good. Yep. Family tree. Yep. Uh, Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 verses 12 through 14. Isaiah 2 verses 12 through 14. Go ahead if anyone has it.
0: For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up and high against all the cedars of Lebanon lofty and lifted up and against all the oaks of Bashan against all the high mountains and against all the lofty hills.
1: Very good. Note that people again are trees, the, the, the cedars of Lebanon and notice also the equate, uh, being equated with mountains there. Also, uh, we're going to skip uh, Matthew seven. I'm just going to give you the reference verses 17 to 20. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. You'll know a tree by its fruit. And of course, it's talking about people. And he goes on to say, it's the one who builds his house upon the rock or the one who builds his house upon the sand. Hosea 14, verse 8. I'll go ahead and read it. And it says, listen to this one. Oh, Ephraim, which is the northern kingdom of Israel, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. God is a tree. God's a tree. So in the tree of life, I'm not saying the tree of life in the garden of Eden was God, but it's closely connected there. So now if we go to the biblical text, obviously you have trees in the garden of Eden. What does Noah make a boat out of? Make the ark out of, out of a tree throughout the entire book of Genesis. Constantly, Abraham goes to offer up his son, Isaac. And what does Isaac carry on his back? Tree wood, Isaac's carrying the wood himself. Joseph sitting under a tree. Almost, almost many stories in the book of Genesis, I was skipping over a dozen of them. Stories in the book of Genesis happen under trees. It's just it's crazy how significant they are and how often they are. And it's often the language of the trees is connecting you back to the Garden of Eden. So it's very intentional, not just to say, oh, well, that's just because in the ancient world, they needed to sit in the shade to do business. Yeah, that's true. But the biblical writer is using language of Genesis to describe that tree and the, and the situation there. Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53, and I, I don't have too much time to go over this one, but this is where we get to the Jesus part now. Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, 12. So I'll say it again. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. So the chapter breaks, not in the best spot there. Is what we call the suffering servant passage. So it's this passage that the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 was reading and Philip was told by God, hey, hey go, go talk to that guy. And Philip goes up, hey, what are you reading? Oh, I'm reading Isaiah 53. And I have a question. Sure, what's the question? Who's this guy talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip's like, oh, let me tell you about Jesus. And of course, this becomes, kind of go back to what Scott said before we started. And that is a Jewish reading of the, of the Old Testament doesn't really get you to Jesus. It doesn't. But a Christian reading does. And so when you take Jesus and you go back, you can find him all over the place. But if you just read the Old Testament as it is, because especially you're not going looking for a suffering servant. You're not looking for a king that's going to die on a cross. Once you've got a king who dies on a cross, you're like, oh, yeah, I can see it there. And it's Isaiah 53, where, of course, it says, he was a sheep before shears of silence, so he did not open his mouth. That's verse 7. He's like a lamb led, led to the slaughter. But look at verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Wait a minute. Parched ground? in the creation story of genesis 2 the land was part the land had no plants yet the suffering servant is like a tender shoot like a root out of parched ground there's more in the book of isaiah that we're not going to have time to, to cover there uh, isaiah 6 i'm going to have to skip that so golgotha we discussed before we came on uh, the recording and we we watched the bible project video on the tree of life and i encourage everyone to look, to watch that video on the tree of life and they connected the tree of life to the jesus on the cross And of course not only that because he dies on a he's crucified on a tree on the top of a hill and he says in john 15 i am the vine and again vine bushes trees all the same word in hebrew so of course jesus might have been speaking aramaic but nonetheless they're connected now there's a really big connection here in the book of deuteronomy this is kind of a side note for a second so this might go past you but let me kind of make note of this in deuteronomy 21 I think it's verse 23, Deuteronomy 21, like verses 21 through 23. It says that cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. So in the book of Deuteronomy, it says like, if you die on a tree, you're cursed. Because the idea of dying on a tree was it's some kind of capital punishment. They hadn't thought at this point in time of crucifixion yet, because it probably hadn't been invented yet. But when the Romans brought crucifixion and the Assyrians before them into the land of what we might call Palestine or Judea, Samaria, Galilee, whatever you might want to call it. When the Romans brought crucifixion in, the Jews had to go back to Deuteronomy 21 and go, all right, if you die on a cross, are you under the curse of Deuteronomy 21 that says, if you're hung on a tree, you're under God's curse. And they said, yes, you are. And that's one of the prim- primary arguments that the Jews made against the Christians when the disciples go, hey, you guys crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. And they're like, what are you talking about? He's, he's under a curse there's no way he could be the Messiah if he dies on a cross because he's under the curse of Deuteronomy 21. And one more side note, you might be familiar with the fact that in Palestine at the time of Jesus, the Romans break the guy's legs to get them off the crosses before sundown. And the reason for that was because of Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, because it says, if you're hung on a tree, you're under the curse. If he's hung overnight, the land is cursed. So the Jews went to the Romans and said, OK, look, we believe that Deuteronomy 21 says if you're crucified, you're under a curse. But if you leave that guy up there all night, we're all cursed. Ain't going to happen in our land, dude. And they went to the Romans and said, you can't leave them up overnight, even though the Romans would leave victims for two or three days. That's the reason why they wouldn't allow victims to a across overnight in, Jer- in Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee. Now, here's the deal. In the New Testament, the question is, is Jesus under God's curse or not? And all the New Testament writers, Paul in the book of Galatians, the book of Acts, Luke in the book of Acts said, you know what? He was hung on a tree. The New Testament writers are clear. Jesus Christ in Acts 13, 29 and Acts 5, verse 30, if you want to write those references down to look them up later, because we don't have time tonight. Acts 13, 29, Acts five thirty. the Greek says tree. Your translations might say a cross, but in Acts 13:29 and in Acts 5:30, it says a tree, and the reason why the word tree is so important is because that goes back to the curse of Deuteron- mm. Deuteronomy. But it's also tying us to the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus is that tree in John 15, of course. Verses I think it's one through eleven. He says he is the tree of life. Now let's look one more, one or two more verses here, and then we're not going to be able to this more good stuff but we'll, we'll, we'll have to skip some of it revelation 2 verse 7 you hey, hey, rob yeah please but,
0: but didn't he take the curse that was upon us yep. upon himself yep yeah.
1: exactly and that's and the whole point that paul makes in galatians 3 is he was cursed to redeem you from the curse
0: yeah exactly
1: that he was cursed without sinning the, the question was how could Jesus redeem us from the curse when he never endured the curse because to endure the curse you have to sin And it's just, ah, Paul goes like, no, he didn't sin, but he was crucified on a tree. And therefore he falls under the curse. And that's Paul's argument in Galatians 3. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 7, the promise of the church, I think it's in the church in Ephesus, is that if you overcome, you'll eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2, 7, if you overcome, you'll eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You might remember from a few weeks earlier, Revelation 22, 2, which refers to the tree of life on both sides of the river is the tree of life. And that's, what's interesting because in Ezekiel, there's two trees and that makes sense how they're on both sides of the river. But in Revelation 22, there's only one tree. It's the tree of life and it's on both sides of the river. Well, I get the roots go underneath. It. it doesn't matter. You get the point, right? We don't have to do that. And of course, verses 14 and verses 19 also 22 22:14, 22, 14, 22, 19 refers to eating from the tree of life. Now the whole point of this whole story now is this. And I have on my notes, Mark 10, verses 42 through 45, that we won't go over now, but you can look it up later. Jesus contrasts the way the kings of the earth do kingdoms, and that is they rule over those in authority, but not so among you. Mark 10, verses 42 through 45. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. That's not the way we do power. So again, the whole point of the biblical story is the kingdom of God brings life. And the one who finds it is the wise person in the book of Proverbs who eats from the tree of life or is actually the tree of life themselves because we are the branches. The foolish person is the one who follows the kingdoms of the world and it brings death and destruction. And that's why we have to read the book of Revelation that way too, to kind of segue back to that. The wrath happening in Revelation isn't God's doing. Maybe you can say the bulls because that's the final judgment. Okay, there's a final, and I do believe there's a final judgment But that's not the same as wrath being poured out on people in the here and now, trying to drive them to repentance. That's what's happening. They're suffering the consequences of what happens when we do power. What happens when we do power? There's famines. Go ask the people of Yemen. Why are a million people starving to death in Yemen? Because Saudi Arabia and Iran are fighting a war in Yemen. And actually, it's the United States and Russia are fighting a war through Saudi Arabia and Iran in Yemen. The people are starving to death. Now, you add a famine to that. It just makes it worse. Mm. It exacerbates the problem, but there's food there. We just can't get it to them because we have this proxy war going on with the kingdoms of the world. All right. One last thing And that is this Judges 21. This is the last verse of the book of Judges. Judges 21, verse 25. Somebody want to read that? De- Deuteronomy 21. This is the last verse of the book of Judges and the segues into the book of Ruth very, very well. I got it. Thanks, Anthony.
0: In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes.
1: That's the garden. Adam and Eve deciding what's right in their own eyes. Thank you for listening to today's
0: podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.